Okay, welcome. Um, what I'd like to briefly, because of the connection both between what we're trying to achieve in our training and also in terms of the time that we're at, which is area of Yom Kippur coming towards Yom Kippur, I think there's something that we can we can utilize some kind of uh, insight that we can get from, from Yom Kippur and from this idea. Overview. One of, the, one of the general points of what we're trying to do over here is to recognize that very often people compartmentalize. They put into two separate categories. There's like Torah and there's mitzvahs and then there's life. And what we're trying to experience is that actually those two things are synonymous. And when you really get what Torah has to say, so it's, it's life. And when you really get what life has to say, so it's Torah. And I really understand myself, so then I understand Torah. And I really understand the Torah, so I understand myself. There's no distinction. And if we think that the Torah is something which is great if you're religious, and if you're not religious, you can be okay without it, so then there's some element of understanding that's missing. And this, of course, is going to inform our perspective of how we interact with people who are not from. If we interact with people who are not from, and we think, listen, I happen to be a person that enjoys religious activity and I'm committed to it, so therefore for me it's something which is valuable um, but it's really re- completely irrelevant for, for anyone else who's not kind of part of this club, so then well, why, why should they be interested? But if what's happening to me is I'm coming into contact with the deepest and most profound experience of life and that's not something that uh, that's not something that, it, that it's because I'm I'm religious. It's something because I have been given the privilege to see a part of the world and a part of myself that that I otherwise wouldn't be able to to see. So that's uh, that relates to chuva. That's how chuva works. Now chuva's, you know, people say chuva, and you translate it into English, and it says repentance, and you think, whoa, I've got to repent, or saying sorry, and you have to make amends. When I'm when I do something to you, and uh, I, I regret it. So I go over to you and say, look, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to speak to you that way. So, sorry. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to speak to you that way. Make it real. Um, so what happens when, when you accept my apologies? Assuming that you would, th- theoretically. What happens to the horrible thing I said? You can feel free to reply. What happens to the horrible thing I said? Does it disappear or does it still stay there? It stays. It stays. But you move on. Move on. You've got to move on. So this is what the Ramchal says about tshuva. It's like it's... It's not completely different. Tshuva is completely different. Tshuva is not saying sorry and making amends. Hi, no problem. Tshuva is not saying sorry and it's not making amends. What is tshuva? Tshuva is like this. He gives an example. He says, imagine someone went... This is his question. He says, Tshuva is a rewriting of history. It's a revision of what occurred. And his example is as follows. Say, Reuven went and he killed Shimon. So now Shimon is dead. And he does Tshuva. What does Ramchal say? He's able to remove the reality, the action, from reality. And no longer did he kill Shimon. <laughs> you look at me and you laugh. Assuming that that kind of emotional reaction would be within the realm of our expectation in this intimate group. 
you say to him, what do you mean? What do you mean? Shimon is lying dead on the floor. And he does tshuva. Shimon does not come back to life. What does the Ramchal mean? That when you do tshuva, you're able to rewrite history. That makes no sense. At all. You get it? So I'm using a skill. Mrs. Burroughs. It's called questioning. You have to question everything. Because questions are... What questions are to... Sorry, let's start the other way. What thirst is to... Questions are to... Wisdom. That should have been more of a like, kind of a, a war cry from the crowd. But they should take them a bit to warm up. Generally like 45 minutes and shares only for 40. Um, so here we go. So, so we have to ask the question and say that makes no sense. That makes no sense. Correct? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. So let's rethink it. Let's rethink it. Let's go back. One second. What, when I actually, can I do anything? Can I actually do anything? I mean, you ask my wife, she says, no. <laughs> I'm glad you're raising that. <laughs> can I do anything? Can one, can a person do anything? The answer is, well, we are pretty limited. For example, in order to come to this share, can you, can you, can you choose to come to the share? Well, yes and no. You can want to come to the share, but can you actually come here? Well, it depends. Depends on the buses. Depends on the car. Depends on the traffic. Depends on the directions. It could be that you have every intention of coming to the share and you never actually turn up here. It's possible. In order for you to get here, there has to be a collaboration. A whole lot of things have to come together. The buses have to work. The directions have to be right. You have to then have the sound mind. You know, people, Achman and Islam, can lose their minds in a second. Some people get disorientated and they have no idea where they are. So, we make a bracha every time we use the bathroom that you wouldn't be able to stay even one second without the Bura Olam intervening. So now, can I actually take my watch? Well, I can want to, but will I manage to? It depends. Does the Bura want it or not? So when I do something, is it me doing it? Or is it the Bura saying, this time I'll let the thing be done? What contribution do I have to any impression I make on the world? The ultimate answer is, the only contribution I have is my want to do it. But if it actually comes out or not, it's completely outside of my control. For example, Reuven wants to kill Shimon. He takes the gun. He takes the gun in his hand. First of all, he needs the collaboration of the Barola that his fingers still work. And then the, the gun's right. And then the gun, the bullet goes straight. And then the bullet hits Shimon in a place that will kill him. As you may know, there was a man called Phineas Gage. Have you heard of Phineas Gage? Phineas Gage was a, a foreman and he worked in a, I don't know, some kind of building, blasting. blasting works. And one day he miscalculated a blast and there was a one meter long metal rod with a sharpened edge that shot out. Now, unfortunately for Phineas, it entered into his cheek and went out the other side of his head, a meter long, and landed 10 meters away from him. So it shot directly through his cranium. Pretty scary, right? What happened? Phineas, after this, was convulsed, got up and said, 
hmm, I really need to see a doctor. Phineas then walked over to the doctor and said, listen, doc, something terrible has happened to me. Doc says, what is it? So he said, um, I've just had a meter-long bolt go through my head. The doctor said, come on. And then he started vomiting. And when the, excuse me for the graphic description, when the brain started to go at the top of his head, the doctor realized that he was telling the truth and he quickly stuffed them back inside. And Phineas survived. Phineas survived and he went eventually to become, um, he, he lost his job because he lost his, prefrontal cortex that wasn't really easy to get along with and eventually became an act in a circus where he walked around with his rod and told people his story. But he survived. Now, if a person can survive a one meter metal rod going directly through his skull, so there's no reason why a bullet can kill anyone. There's been many times when bullets have been shot into people, gone in one side, gone to the other side, and the person's completely okay afterwards. So in order for someone to kill someone else, you need the collaboration, the cooperation of many forces outside of your control. Ultimately, the only thing you can ever choose to do is want to do something, but you can never do something. It's out of your control to actually make something happen. You can only want it. So what's your ingredient in every action? It's your want. Good so far, part one, okay? Yes. Yes? Okay. Now, what is Chiva? Says Ramchal, Chiva is considered, the tshuva works in the form of charata. What is charata? Imagine like this. You, you, need to, you need to go shopping, and you want to pay in cash. So you go to the um, ATM, and you withdraw a thousand shekels. And you, you take out the thousand shekels, and you're about to put them into your bag, and your phone rings, so you just leave them on the counter, and you answer your phone, and you get distracted by the person you're speaking to, and you walk away from the teller. And you don't realize that you forgot the thousand shekels there. And you're on the phone, and you walk away, and then two minutes later, you go, oh my gosh, I forgot the thousand shekels. You run back to the teller, and they're gone. No more money. And that was your thousand shekels for all your shopping. How do you feel? Stupid. What would you wish to do, Ms. Frankel, if you had a choice? What, if, if you could do something, what would you wish be, even if that's not realistic? You'd love to do what? Turn the time back. That's called charot. You go, you just give me three minutes. Just go three minutes back. I will not do that again. If you put me in that situation, I will never do that again. I cannot believe I did that. Oh my gosh, I wish I never would have done that. They were so stupid. Oh, that's called charata. That's called charata. That's, how, that's what tshuva is based on. Tshuva means I remove the rotson I originally had. The want to do it is gone. And I say, what I did wasn't what I wanted to do. I can't believe what happened to me. Something else kind of overcame me. It's not what I wanted. I didn't want to do that. Let me just contrast the difference between that and guilt. There's a very negative emotion, even though it's been cherished by Jewish mothers for millennia. It's called guilt. <coughs> guilt is a very negative emotion. Because guilt and, and regret, which Harata, which I've just described, look the same, but they're actually very different. And how are they different? Guilt is when I did something in the past. Just something in the past, something I'm not really proud of. It's horrible to someone. And I look at myself in the present, so I've got the action in the past, I look at myself in the present and I say, oh my gosh, I'm so horrible. 
I said those horrible things to the person. I feel so bad that I said those horrible things. I'm so horrible. I'm such a horrible person. And I take the feeling of the past and I bring it into the present and I feel horrible about what I did because I'm such a horrible person. So I bring the feeling and the person in the past into the present and then generally what happens is I'll probably do the same thing again because I've just enforced, reinforced that feeling. That's guilt. Terrible thing. It's depressing. It's horrible. It's debilitating. It stops us from moving forward. Then there's the thing called charata. It's exactly the opposite. I look at the thing in the past and I go, what? <sighs> what an idiot! What a stupid thing to do. Now think about it. When you call yourself an idiot, who's the person calling the other part of you an idiot? One thing we know for sure, it's not an idiot. Because an idiot doesn't know that's an idiot. That's why it's an idiot. So it means that charata is exactly the opposite of guilt. Guilt says the person in the past is the person in the present, they will be the person in the future. Charata says the person in the present is the exact opposite of the person in the past. And that's why you want to turn the clock back, because if I put myself back in that place, I never would do that again. That's called akirat haratzon. Akirat haratzon. I'm uplifting. I put it back there. Say, no, I never put me back there. That's not me. That's the opposite of me. That's what I would have done. That's the pain of harata. I just wish I could turn the clock back. That's what chuvi is based on. So far, so good. Yes, yes, good. Animated expressions. Mildly animated. Nothing out of. Very good. So you take the charata is what Shiva is about. It's called the akirata. You, open, you, you uproot the will. So, so that's good. So now we understand why Shiva should be that since all I contribute to the action is the want to do it, when I regret it, I now remove that want. I no longer have that want in me. So therefore I fixed up what I did wrong. Good? Small problem. That's good for the present. But how does it undo the past? Do you understand? Right now, I regret it. But then I did it. And then, seemingly, I wanted to do it. Person is nechshal me'itreif. And then after, oh, I can't believe I did that. No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that now, but then I wanted to do that. So I can uproot the, the will in the present, but I can't do it in the past. You following me? Now we get onto the Arizal's vote, which people are fond about saying just before Purim. Yom Kippurim. That um, Yom Kippur is a day like Purim. So everyone says it's like on Purim to stop Borchim from getting drunk. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippurim. Purim so high, it's higher than Yom Kippur. Uh, Rav Hutner says the Pshat in what this is. Listen to this. This is, this is quite incredible. Rav Hutner says, what was Purim? Purim was when the Jews received the Torah. Right? the Megillah says, They said, you know what? We, by accepting the extra laws of the Megillah, they said, we want to receive the Torah. Now, why were they saying that? Do you know why? If you remember back, how was the Torah given? Shem says like this. Suspends our Sinai. He says, If you want to receive the Torah, that's great. And if not, you will be buried there. Do you know what that's called? That's called duress. You're not given a choice. And any contract you, an- you enter into, and someone puts a gun to your head and they say, sign, is it a binding contract? Is it? No. 
No, if someone puts a gun to your head and they say sign this, you, you say, I only signed it because it was a gun. I didn't mean to sign it. So that means that when the Jews received the Torah, it wasn't binding. Because it was under duress. And that's what the Gemara says. The Gemara says, Mikan Rabba this is invalidates the whole Torah because the Torah was accepted under duress and therefore the contact, contract is not binding. So the Gemara says, don't worry, in the time of Mordechai and Esther, the Jews received it and from then it became binding. Fantastic. So it's binding for us, you don't have to worry. You could continue keeping mitzvahs. The question is though, from the time that the Torah was given until Purim, there was a long time. And there were Nevi'im. And there was a Churban of the Ba'is Rishon. So I don't understand. Why were the Jews held culpable for their mitzvahs and avarice? It wasn't binding. You can't punish a person unless they engaged in, in a contract which was binding. Problem. Get it? You have the problem? I know this is demanding for a Sunday night Erev Yom Kippur. But keep, keep focused. Good? Focused? Great. So now, it says our footnote the following thing. On Purim, it wasn't that they re-accepted the Torah. If they recognized they wanted the Torah always. And with that, they repositioned, they reviewed what happened at Matan Torah. Yes, the mountain was held above them and it looked like duress. It looked like they were forced. But really, if the Hashem would have taken the mountain away, they said, Nice Venishma. They wanted it anyway. They didn't do it because of the mountain, they did it because they wanted to. How do we know? Because when it came to accepting extra mitzvahs in the time of Mordechai and Esther, they said, we want them. So you see that their deepest desire was, we want the Torah. We want it. When did we discover that that was always true on Purim? But that's true back then. What appeared to be duress, what appeared to be oinus, was really rotzoid. It was really willful. So that's how Purim works. Yom Kippur works in exactly the same way, but the opposite way around. Purim was, there was a giving of the Torah in the past, which looked like it was under duress. And the action in the present showed that what appeared to be oines was really rotten. What appeared to be forced was really willful. How did I see that? Because when they recognized that they wanted the mitzvahs, they exposed that their deepest desire was to do what the Torah says, and that was what they really wanted. That's Purim. Yom Kippur, exactly the same. How so? We did an action in the past. We all have these people, people in inverted commas, people that uh, imposters who try to take over the running of ourselves. Um, evil forces. Essentially, what are we? We are beautiful, incorruptible, neshama, with only good things inside of us. But we've got all these people that try to take over. All these forces. We've got Taivan, Gaivan, Kaz. Those aren't who we are. Those are there to create an opportunity so there's resistance so we can bring ourselves out into reality. So these imposters come in and they take over the ship. And they make us do things that we don't want to do. What happens when I look at something that I don't want to do in the past and I say, I wish I never would have done that. I reveal inside of myself that the person in the past that appeared to do, do something willingful, willfully was really under duress. It's like Purim, but the opposite. The act in the past, which appeared willful, I reveal in the present, was really an onus. 
The act in the past that I seemed to be doing because I wanted to was actually I was forced to. How do I know that? Because in the present I say, oh, I didn't want to do that. That wasn't me. That was not me. That's not the me I want. How could I have been so foolish? How can be that wasn't me? I was under duress. So it's like Purim, but the opposite direction. In Purim, I looked at the action which looked like it was forced onto me, ready, it was willful. In Yom Kippur, I looked at the act. In Purim, the act of receiving the Torah looked like it was forced, it was ready, wanted. In Yom Kippur, I looked at the act which was the breaking of the Torah. It looked like it was willful. No, it was ready, forced. Who forced me? Yitzroy Oinsoy. My Yitzroy forced me to do it. But I didn't want to do that. The etzem, the deepest part of myself, didn't want that. When do I realize that? In the process of children, I have regret. I say, that's not me. That wasn't you. No, I didn't relate to the action. The action's below me. No. He was stupid. He was, no, that's not me. That's not me. That's not me. There was someone who came in and took over me for a while. Like the Gemara says, Ein Adam, um, that, and the very that you do is a temporary form of insanity. You're not, you're, not, you're, not, you're not present. If you're doing you never do that. Why would you do that? You're so disconnected from yourself. So really, Yom Kippur and Purim are the same thing. It's amazing. Yom Kippurim. So really, Yom Kippur and Purim are the same. They both respond to an act in the past. In the present, we reveal the reality. In the case of Purim, we reveal what looked like it was forced, was really wanted. In the case of Yom Kippur, we look at what really was wanted, was forced. But they both focus on the same hinge. When I get to see the deepest part of myself, which is the deepest desire, our deepest desire is to connect to Hashem. That's, that's the reality. That tells me a whole new idea. If that's true, we understand how, to, how Shiva can rewrite history. Because when I remove, when I recognize the will in the present, I recognize that the action in the past was never me. And therefore I remove the action in the past because it wasn't me to begin with. It was an imposter. And that's how, that's how Chuva rewrites history. He looked around the room and he met a, a sea of confused faces. Did anyone understand that? Understand? Mrs. Goodman? Good? Mrs. Kleiner? More or less. More or less, okay. Mrs. Davis? Good. Mr. Siegel? Kind of. Okay, good. So that's, now why is it relevant for us? Because that is, is like, if you look at that as a vote, oh, it's a nice vote, which, it, which is a beautiful vote. But that's not what's relevant for us. What's relevant for us is that the process of tshuva is not a process of um, randomly doing more things or trying to be a better person. It's trying to recognize who I am. It's trying to discover what's the most authentic part of who I am. Where's my authentic self? What's the real me? Who's the real me? And very often that's very confusing. Is the real me the, the deep desire to, someone did something really wrong to me, I just want to speak Loshanara about them. And I feel Loshanara on the tip of my tongue and it's going to be so gushmak. Is that the real me? Or is the real me the little voice inside which says, don't say it? So Chuva helps us locate because it's confusing. I walk around life and I think to myself, I don't know I am. I'm half beast and half angel. Sometimes I want to do this and sometimes I want to do that. I don't know where I am. I've got this identity crisis. Who is the real me? And the point of Chuva is, this is the real me. The real me is pure. The real me is good. The real me is, like we explained last time, that every time we do something good, it's a break in the clouds which allows me to see the sun that's shining behind it. Now, if that's true of myself, that's true of everyone else around me. So when you try to explain and express to people the beauty of Yiddishkeit, 
What are you trying to do? You're trying to allow yourselves and them to reconnect to the deepest part of themselves, which if we're not connected to that, so in a sense of alienation, we're in a sense of internal, exi- internal exile. That's a horrible place to be. Because that must create such a sense of discomfort and confusion and conflict. But when I'm in connection with myself, so then I feel at peace, I feel tranquil, I feel, okay, I'm here. Of course, that's a long way to go. And it's a journey. But if we don't know the destination, how can we ever begin? End of part one. Now, for parts 2 through 17, you're going to have to pay attention. Joking. Good. Practically speaking, practically, what does this mean? This means when you think about tshuva, just first of all, the way you think about it, it's not that I'm trying to be something better than myself, it's I'm trying to be something that is myself. And that should fit hand in glove. That should fit very carefully. Now, what happens if it doesn't fit? So as we said last time, if it doesn't fit, because sometimes when you're used to being misaligned and you have to realign yourself, so it feels uncomfortable, even though it's really the way you should be feeling. But I want to take it one step further. How should this impact us in terms of, you know, Yom Kippur, we want to find a way of directing that energy. So it's called what, you you, you try to do something, try to do a Kabbalah, some kind of thing that you accept upon yourself that will help you to integrate Shiva into your life. So what kind of Kabbalah should you choose? Um, I shared with your husband today, husbands, a very uh, important Maharal. The Maharal asks a question. Kain and Hevel. Hevel brought a korban and was accepted. Kain brought a korban and was rejected. Kain kills Hevel. Says the Maharal, how could he kill Hevel? Hevel just did a big mitzvah. He brought a korban which was accepted. And there's a passage which says if you do a mitzvah, you will not know anything bad. The mitzvah will protect you. So why wasn't Hevel protected by the mitzvah he did? Good kasha. Good kasha. So the Mara answers and he says, well, how did Hevel know to bring a korban? The answer is he saw kind. And kind brought a korban. He said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. I'll do the same. And even though he did it, and his was accepted and kind was rejected, he didn't come up with the idea himself. So says the Maral, when you do something and you don't come up with it yourself, it's not really a mitzvah. It's not yours. It's a nice thing to do, but it's not yours. If it's not coming from yourself, so then it's not meaningful. Now if you think about that, how much of the mitzvahs we do, do we do just because we happen to be placed in a society where it's a thing to do? What would be if we took all of ourselves and now we went to a place called Tallahassee in Florida and we're the only from people around and there's no one else that's from? How much of our Yishkai would stay? However much of your Yishkai would stay, that's what's real. And everything else that would disappear is just what the environment is scaffolding you with. Now listen to how scary this is. Imagine you never go to Tallahassee. And you live out your 120 years, and then you die. And then you come to Olam Emes, and the Olam says, so why don't you keep mitzvahs? You say, 
What do you mean? I kept all the mitzvahs. And he said, really? Why did you keep them? Well, the reason I dressed this way is because everyone else was dressing this way. And the reason I said brachas, I felt bad not saying brachas because everyone else was saying brachas. And the reason I did this... But, but what did you do for yourself? What came from within? What was different? What was unique? Where did you express your deepest urge, desire to connect to me? He said, I don't know. I was like, like, kind of just kind of going along with it. So I said, okay, back you go. <laughs> no, I don't know what to say. But, uh, so now I think about it. That is a very compelling idea that we have to create a uniqueness in our Vedas Hashem. And when we're designing our takana, it has to fit with us. So my wife told me a great story. I told your husband as well. I think it's a fantastic story. About this boy who he lost his arm. He had one arm. Did you hear the story yet? So you tell it back to your husband and see who got the better version. Okay? So this boy lost his arm. And his parents wanted to build up the confidence. So they decided to send him to a, uh, a judo class. Now, personally, I wouldn't have chosen judo as a martial art for a guy with one arm because it's all about grips and throws. And you definitely, like, I would choose like a kicking martial art. But they chose judo. So he goes to judo, and they've got Mr. Miyagi, who you don't know who he is. And he's this, like, judo, judo master, Japanese judo master. His name wasn't really Mr. Miyagi. And um, he trains him and trains him and trains him until comes the day for the competition. And um, he goes into the ring. Into the, onto the mat, it's on the mat, and they're facing each other, and his opponent takes him, grabs him the hold, <laughs> slams him on the ground. His parents like, cringe. And as he like gets up and tries to right himself, this guy takes something up, <laughs> slams him on the ground. And again, and again, and again, and again. He's been completely wiped out. And his parents are like, oh my gosh, let's get him out of here. This is, this is like a slaughter, we can't do this. And his trainer says, no, no, leave him be. And he survives the first round, and he writes himself almost half concussed, and he goes in for the second round. And by this time, his opponent has let his guard down just a drop, and the boy with one arm grabs him, slams him down, slams him down again and again and again until he wins. People can't believe it. They cheer. They cry. His parents go. They hug him. They go over to the train and they say, how did you know? What did you do? He says, I taught him one powerful move. I taught him a grip that the only defense that your opponent can use against it is grabbing your right arm. And he didn't have a right arm to grab. When we think of a takona, a kabbalah for ourselves, we're all missing an arm in some way or another. So if we try to figure out a way that we can be better and we don't think about our lackings, we'll never be able to move forward. When we think about moving forward, we should make it our own. What does it mean? Using my strength and my weakness as a strength. And design something that I can do in the next year that will accentuate that and that will put me on the path of a completely different life. Because the goal of Chiva isn't to transform in action overnight. It's to just take a small step to the side, but when you, like the Mr. Shaim says, if you have two things which at their starting point are extremely close together, just watch them.
and they go further and further apart. All you need to do is take one action which redirects where you're going and you'll land up in a completely different place. So when you relate to yourself and you think of one thing that you can do that speaks to who you are as a person and that takes into consideration your strength and your weakness and uses your weakness as a strength in the context, so then you can navigate a completely new direction in life. And that new direction in life will bring you back to yourself to bring you back to the idea that you recognize that this is not a religion and these aren't traditions. This is the experience of my authentic self. And the closer I get to myself, the closer I get to the Bo'olam. The closer I get to my Shama, the closer I get to other people. The more I see that, the more I connect. And the question from this um, is good. Could you give an example? Okay. Um, I've got, an, I've got a problem that I find it difficult like, to I don't necessarily process what's going on around me. My wife doesn't have that problem and she happily points out when I, when I fail. Um, I can like, be like, in my own head and like, not recognize like, that there's children crying and things going on. I'm happy in my head. Um, so that's, 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 that's definitely a, a disadvantage. But that becomes an advantage when you want to have kavana and tefillah. Because then, not noticing what's going on around you adds to my advantage. So how do I use my weakness as a strength? I decide that what I'm going to do is, when I say shayatza, I'm going to stand still and not move until I've finished. And it doesn't matter where I am and when I am. So I can be in an airport. I can be in a busy, you know, a busy shopping center. I can be at home with people going around me. I use that as a way of focusing and recognizing the Bar-Olam, and that at disadvantage acts to my advantage. So actually I did this, I accepted this Takana about, by now it's probably 15 years ago. You think, okay, so I decided to keep still when I say Asha Since I accepted it, it must have been, I've done it tens of thousands of times. It doesn't matter when it is and how it is, I'm just standing still. So you think, but that's such a small thing. Yeah, but that's a massive thing. It's only a small thing when you think about doing it once. But when you think about doing it tens and then 20,000 times and 30,000 times, so then it's, it becomes an anchor in your life. Is that a good example? Mm-hmm. Get me? Okay. Good? You haven't want, hasn't then improved on the thing that's the weakness. You've used the weakness to help you with another good thing. Right. Okay. In other words, should I work on that weakness? For sure I should. But I want to use my weakness as a strength. Right. New point. How about the fact that you know when the kid's crying, you should like, take, pay attention. Good point. Good point. It's not my job. I'm joking. Good, good point. I have to work on that as well. New, new, new area. New area. I have to find another way. How can I work with that? So even though like, I may be distracted, but I do like, I like people. So maybe I can use my love of people to open up my eyes and say, oh, look what's going on now. There's actually people around you because you like people. So you should, should notice them. Do you understand? And then you, but you're always working with yourself, working with yourself, working with yourself. You can't work with someone else. And so often, if you're copying people, so then you're working with someone else. How can that ever work? And that's not you. And that's not relating to your authentic self. And therefore, it's not going to have any... And the more you get better at this, the more you start to change, the more you start to change, the more you understand the dynamics of change, and then the more you can have, help other people change according to who they are. 
And then you can transform the lives of other people, which is what we had to do. Transform ourselves and help other people transform. Good. Thank you for your rapt attention.